0: I'm here today with Dr. Andrew Lawrence-King, historical musician, harpist, continuo player, baroque opera director, winner of a Grammy in the category of Best Small Ensemble Performance, also a radio fencer and tai chi practitioner, and I should mention his crowning professional achievement is, of course, providing the harp music for my George Silver Paradise on Defense audiobook. So without further ado, Andrew, welcome to the show. Hello. It's great to be here. So whereabouts are you? I'm in my new home in Tallinn,
1: Estonia, as a result of the pandemic and Brexit combined. Oh God. Um, I had to move away from my birthplace, which is Guernsey, uh, in the Channel Islands. Um, that's a tiny little island, culturally connected to the UK, but geographically much closer to France. So I lived there nearly all my life, but I just had to pick up everything and move and um, just over a year ago. So I now live in Tallinn, Estonia, um,
0: and um, I'm enjoying it here a lot. Wow, well, I can imagine Tallinn is lovely and very close to Helsinki. Yes. So yes. It's a quick hop across <laughs> the water. Absolutely. It's a glorious ferry trip. I enjoy it. Um, okay, so there's going to be a bunch of technical musical terms in this interview I am sure and I know quite a few already actually (laughs) (laughs) yeah and I know that quite quite a few of my listeners are like unfamiliar with the specifics of historical music so why don't we start with what actually is Continuo well it's the name of my boat um Um,
1: (laughs) okay but uh yeah This was something they invented around the year 1600. So we're right in sort of rapier territory here. Mm -hmm. And it sounds so obvious to us now, but it wasn't to them at the time. They really came up with a completely different way of making music Mm -hmm. by playing chords, just as you would like strum chords on a guitar nowadays. And that sounds so obvious to us but it wasn't how they thought music happened previously. They thought that the only way to make music was to get perhaps two or three people singing or Mm -hmm. two or three people playing different instruments. And they each play a melody and those melodies fit together to make the harmony. The idea of just picking up an instrument and playing a chord on it so that one instrument can make a harmony was completely new. Oh, wow. This changed everything about the way they saw music. Because if you're thinking about combining different melodies and you're seeing everything, if you like, horizontally in time, if you're looking at a score of a piece of music, you're looking horizontally through the music. You know, how does my melody go? How does your melody go? And, oh, yes, okay, they align like this. They fit together like this to create harmonies. But suddenly with this new way of thinking and this new way of making music they're thinking okay I'm going to play a whole lot of notes all together right now and call that a harmony so this was the big new way of thinking and what it let them do it let them do solo songs with a single instrument accompanying and it let them write that down it let them write it down in a way that was uh, very efficient with as 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 little sort of paperwork as possible, but just the essential information that lets you make the song. And of course, and, they had been doing songs like this before,
0: but they had been thinking of, of it in a different way and writing it down yeah. in a different way. Yeah, I was thinking like troubadours, you know, wandering around on their own with a stringed instrument, singing songs and accompanying themselves on a lute or what have you. That was already going on. So but they were the notion doing
1: that. Yeah, but when they're doing that, they're thinking, okay, my voice is one thing. My voice is one voice, if you like, mm-hmm. and the instrument is like a another voice, and I could alternate those voices, or I could have them do two melodies or the same melody more or less, but a bit different. But all of that is thinking in terms of combining voices, whether those voices are literal human voices or instrumental okay in, uh, voices. And this was the new thing to think to think vertically to think okay. Let's just play a whole load of sounds at once and call that a chord. And then to come up with a way of writing this. And the writing was really the great thing because it, they came up with a system of writing that gave a lot of information in very little space of paper. That's great. Mm -hmm. Very quick to read, giving you what you needed to know, but nothing unnecessary. And the great thing was it was adaptable. So this same way of writing, you could use it to play these chords on a guitar or a harp, my main instrument, or a keyboard instrument, or on almost anything. It was completely adaptable, whereas previously the notation had tended to be very specific for the particular uh, instrument you were writing for. And of course, once they had this way of thinking and this way of writing, it changed what they could do. And... okay this continuo very quickly changed from being what we would think of as an accompaniment, something which sort of follows along, something which is has a kind of subsidiary role it changed to being something that actually leads and this is something which a lot of um, musicians today are still just starting to understand, that this Continuum approach to music this was actually how they were um leading a performance so it's very familiar to us nowadays but in a different context if you think of a rock band or a jazz band mm-hmm. then it's pretty obvious that the rock band is held together by the drummer and the bass player The two of them work together, they're underpinning it all and they set the groove, they give the foundation and then the lead guitarist and the singer, they're just having fun over the top of that. Right. And the similar idea in a jazz band where you've got a rhythm section, perhaps piano, Mm -hmm. bass and drums is the classic. You might have a guitar in there and those guys are at the centre of it. They make the rhythmic structure. They play the basic harmonies and then the various soloists are jamming over the top and especially in a jazz band you don't want those rhythm players you don't want them to follow the soloists if the soloist does a nice syncopation but the rhythm section go oh hang on you syncopated let me stop for a moment and get together with him again of course they'll completely wreck the syncopation the yeah. job of the rhythm section is just to get a good groove going and keep that groove so that the soloists can dance and twist and slide Mm. around it in interesting ways. And this was the function of this continuo playing. It could be one instrument. It could be a group of two or three. It could be a big section of, you know, like a sizable chunk of the orchestra could be this continuo section. And they are the joint leaders. And that's why in my... Um, when I, that's why I asked you in the introduction that you nicely gave me not to call me a conductor because ah. in this music around the year 1600 there was no conductor nobody standing in front waving their hands and making funny faces rather than the, the drive for the music and the guidance and all the rhythmic energy comes from this continuo this rhythm section if you like um, and we've got lots of historical evidence showing us that. But the best historical evidence anyone can see for themselves, just, you know, do a Google image search on, um, musical ensembles around the year 1600, and you'll see wonderful angel pictures, theatre pictures, pictures of amateurs, pictures of professionals playing a court, all kinds of weird and wonderful early music instruments the only thing you won't see is a conductor standing in front of it all because they didn't do that.
0: Wow. Okay. So sometime around 1600, they re-envisioned how music was. Mm. Okay. Is this connected to any other sort of cultural changes or... Is, is it part of a wider cultural movement or is it specific to music? It's part of this whole thing
1: of um trying to rediscover, reestablish the ancient Greek and Latin uh classical cultures. So okay. for example, they wanted to re-establish ancient Greek drama mm-hmm. um and they modelled what became the first operas on their understanding of of Greek drama. If you think of, you know, your Greek amphitheater um, and the, the actors with their masks and the chorus doing their um, sort of synchronized choreography while they're declaiming their choruses, they had pretty sketchy ideas of what was happening back then, um, but they really ran with those ideas um, and invented a whole lot of new stuff, new instruments, instruments specifically for this kind of continuo playing this whole other way of thinking about music so yeah um a lot was changing there i think the uh, other well, thing uh, why is it called continuo oh it's called continuo because it goes all the way through it just continues uh okay so normally if you think of um the way they were doing music before you might have four five or six singers and the bass singer he would sing a phrase. He'd stop and take a breath. There'd be perhaps some sections where he doesn't sing to change the sound a bit. Sometimes he would be singing, but not at the bottom of the texture. He would go up into some higher notes and one of the tenors would come down. All these things are up for grabs. But with this new way of doing it, um, they write the music as a bass line. So right. going back to the idea of a, of a jazz band, it's like you write out a part for the double bass, but the piano... And the drums and the guitar, they're playing from that same bass part. So we think of it as a bass part, but you don't play what it says. You just look at what it says and make up something for yourself to play. But you go all the way through, just like the rhythm section in a jazz band. Uh, You don't stop and start as the other voices do. So they come and go, but this continuo continues.
0: Right, okay. Do you know, I've known you quite a long time now, and I've always wondered what continuo was. I've somehow, we've never actually, I've never actually got around to asking you. Yeah. It takes a podcast to bring out the questions. Yeah. So they started this um, about 1600, and okay.
1: um, it's really the defining feature of music. So as we go right through into the 1700s, so now we're onto the big names, Handel, Bach, Vivaldi. But it carries on right through the 1700s. So we're talking Haydn and Mozart. And it's really only with Beethoven that it falls out of favour. And, for example, orchestras no longer have a continuo instrument just playing along. The orchestra manages to survive without continuo. And, of course, that's when conductors
0: start. Ah... Okay. So the the role of the conductor was really to replace the missing sort of continuous. This is the pattern of the music that we're all going to follow. So you basically had instrument players who were effectively the conductor because they were giving the rhythm and they were, yeah, right. Oh, that makes a lot of sense. Ha. Okay. Um, <laughs> we we could really geek out on the music stuff for a while and I think we probably will but before we do that this is a sword show after all and I do have to ask how did you get into swords and I mean I know you because you you, you basically contacted me a while ago having read one of my books uh, asking for rapier lessons because you were putting on a show but I that's that's how we met but how how did the whole sword thing really come about for you and you know I've racked my brains trying to remember the sequence of events.
1: Um, The specific thing was this, um, it's like a miniature opera. It lasts about 15, 20 minutes. It's from this period around the year 1600. And it's the story of a uh, duel to the death. And it's got all kinds of operatic extras to it. So the duel, first of all, it's between a Chris, Christian warrior and a Saracen warrior. It's set around the uh, liberation of Jerusalem. So in the in the um, Crusades, and all oh, the, the, the twists come more and more. So the Saracen warrior is actually a woman, but she's in full armor, so she's not recognised. Not only is she a woman, but she's actually the lover of the Christian warrior who she ends up dueling with. Um, so uh, the at the culmination of this miniature opera, he actually deals the fatal blow. She asks to be baptized. And when he takes off her helmet to baptize her with water that he's carried in his helmet from a nearby river, when he lifts her visor and recognizes her, of course, this is the terrible moment where he realizes that he's won the battle, but he's he's lost everything. So it's a it's a wonderful, exciting story. Uh, the story is written by the poet Tasso, who was definitely by this time mad, but was obsessed with sword fighting. Um, so it's well, that doesn't sword...
0: mean he's mad. I mean, no, no, know, no, no quite no. a lot of us. <laughs> quite a lot of us are obsessed with sword fighting. we're <laughs> I mean, perfectly safe, honestly, perfectly safe. <laughs> <laughs> um and, and
1: so there's a lot of um there's a lot of technical language in the poetry, um which I started learning about um studying with you. Um but somehow I came up with the idea that I think I was thinking about how they would have um how they would have staged this. Because what everybody does nowadays is they um uh with a piece like this they'll have they'll call a fight director in um, yeah. and they'll do a kind of you know d- dramatised theatre fight and nothing wrong with that but it's not historical so looking at it from the his viewpoint of historically how would they have performed it because we know that even dramas like this they did with minimal rehearsal right. so the idea of the, sort of the you know, sort of five or six weeks that would be put into a, a modern day opera production. Um, they often had next to no rehearsal. So what I was thinking about was what would these guys know already? What what hmm. skills did they have? What could they, what do they already have in sort of under their belt that they could, they could actually use quickly to um, make a production? Oh, and we, we should
0: probably, sorry, just tell us the name of
1: this opera. Ah, yeah, it's called Combatimental, the combat, and it's the Combatimento to Tancredi and Clorinda of Tancredi and Clorinda. So Tancredi, Tancred, more or less in English, is the male Christian hero, and Clorinda is his, um, Saracen girlfriend. There's complicated things she, um, I can't remember all the backstory, but um, I think she was brought up as a Muslim, even though she's Christian by origins or something like this. Um, okay. all, all very complicated. So, And um, it's a very special piece because the, uh, there's a continuous section guiding and supporting the whole thing. There's also a string section, four strings, But most of what they play is not really music. Most of what they play is sound effects imitating the Mm. sort of the general activity of the battle, but also specific things. So there's the the sound of of swords sliding across each other, imitated with the bow strokes. Um, There's one moment where they, the the, the two having the duel, uh, it says that they're, banging their shields together and banging the helmets together. It's really full-on combat. And so that the strings imitate these sounds as well. And wow. they had the string players out of sight. So the idea was that these these were really select sort of sound effects and the audience would be puzzled about how they were being produced. There okay. was another wonderful shock in the original production of of this piece, which is that it wasn't in a theatre, and it certainly wasn't sort of advertised as come to the opera. Rather, it was during a courtly evening. So your elegant Renaissance courtiers are sitting around having nice, arty conversations. Sometimes there might be a poetry reading. Some people might stand up, a group of five or six, and sing a madrigal. Somebody might stand up and do a little dance. So it's this kind of very elegant courtly evening and in the middle of all this the singer who's going to be the narrator the solo singer stands up and he just starts singing his song which is narrating the story of this battle and his very first words are to introduce the the two characters so his first word itself is Tancredi and as he says the name of course, the, you know, the audience is looking, okay, here we go with the story. In fact, as soon as they hear the name, they know the backstory. They know the book of poetry it all comes from. So they go, oh, okay, yeah. Now we know we are. This is Game of Thrones. We, we, we know who all the characters are. We know the setting. But as the singer says the first name, the character appears in costume. And then the other character appears in costume. And the two actors... Act out everything that's described. Wow. So wonderful shock for the audience in the middle of what you thought was kind of sort of concert and poetry
0: reading to have this live show. I've I've done that in at sort of medieval events or what have you where you know there's a banquet or whatever Mm. and it's mostly like paying paying guests Mm. or paying punters and they're sitting there and then a fight breaks out. (laughs) <laughs> yeah <laughs> Which is Which is great fun. I mean I remember One particular one um, The guy who Ends up winning The fight Gets flogged Afterwards Because we happened To have somebody there Who was a bullwhip expert And it all went Very strange Very quickly But yeah That kind of like It If you're expecting I don't know A couple of musicians On stage Singing you A kind of Appropriate song For the occasion That's one thing mm. But when When you're like In the thick of it And these people Kind of Who've been sitting There having dinner With you perhaps start hitting each other and you're not quite sure if it's real. That's a brilliant moment.
1: Yeah. Yeah.
0: Yeah. So anyway, trying to um, make a
1: a modern day production, but that is as, as historical as possible. So I'm thinking about, you know, sort of how did they do this? How did they do this with minimal rehearsal? And we know that for, for opera itself, One of the reasons they didn't need so much rehearsal was that the actors had most of the skills that would be needed for an opera production. They had them anyway from daily life. So in an opera production, typically the director will do things like, "Okay, uh, this person has to stand over here on the left. That person stands a bit further back on the right. You just tell people where to be on the stage. Well, you don't need to do that in Renaissance Italy because the people are courtiers they know where to stand. Hmm. Uh, You know, once you've got the king seated centrally and that's where he sits, um, then everybody else orders themselves around. They know where to stand. They know how to stand. They know how to speak elegantly and how to use their hands while they're speaking. So, none of this is acting. All of this is just the etiquette of everyday life, just set in motion on the stage. And so, I started thinking about, you know, well, what what would they already know from everyday life that they could use to make this some um, combat, and how? I mean, obviously, it's it's supposed to be realistic. The instruction is that the, the actors do everything that's described in the narration, but on the on the other hand, the narration says things like, "and so he sticks the sword into her chest, and the blood flows, and you know, she dies." Um, a few bars later. So we can't actually be doing that And we, you know, presumably the actors lived to do a performance the following night. So you've got safety concerns nowadays, but there would have been safety concerns back then as well. And so the answer I came up with is that rather than sort of staging a fight as such, um, they would draw on what the singers already knew just from their... You know, as courtiers, they would have been studying swordsmanship anyway. They would have been mm-hmm. studying dance and all kinds of other things too. And so, um, that got me interested in, well, how did people study swordsmanship back then? And the next thing I found myself at the sal in Helsinki.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. This one I have in the past put on sort of fights for public right, at at events or you know role-playing events or um, uh, medieval fairs, that sort of thing. And with people you already know and you've fenced with before, I mean, one thing I have done many times is you you choreograph the last move of the fight, so the kill. You choreograph the kill and you have a signal for the kill that is one person will give the signal and they're the person who's kind of responsible for timing the whole thing so it doesn't go on too long or too short. Right. And then you just fence with an agreement that you're not going to hit each other until the person gives a signal and you move into the kill. Mm. And it's, it's, you you choreograph it in about three minutes. Mm. And the fight can be as long or as short as it needs to be because you already, you can already fence each other and you're sufficiently in control of the weapons that you know you're not going to hit each other. Yeah. Um, and you could, and also this way you can have a lot of fun and a lot of genuine right. interaction, which is exactly. too
1: choreographed. You're not going to get.
0: Yeah. yeah, I mean, you wouldn't want to do that on a stage with regular actors who are not like serious fencers. Yeah, um, it, it's very much for like for people who have a pretty deep um, for you know they're, they're pretty deeply versed in the art of arms. Yeah, know. Um, I'm not In recommending this- it as, as a thing for like modern <laughs> productions to do. That would be disastrous and the health and safety police would, would skin you alive. But, um. But they could yeah, as- thinking, they could have been thinking this way, hmm. um,
1: for Monteverdi's piece because actually the, the two actors who do the fight, they have almost nothing to sing. Tangredi right. has one long speech. Clorinda has a couple of things to sing. Now the things they sing are, very emotional because of the context that it's all been put in. So, you know, when she says, I'm dying and I see heaven opening up before me because of the whole story, this is fantastic. But in terms of notes and sort of, you know, the tech, the demands of singing, there's not really so much. So they probably were free to choose people who were good sword fighters rather than
0: needing to choose
1: their very best singers, for the job. Right, yeah. Okay, so you'd
0: want the narrator to be a good singer, but if Tank be, You'd want the narrator to be a good singer who understood sword
1: fighting, and I think you'd want the two actors to be good sword fighters who could sing a bit.
0: <laughs> That's a good way to put it. Okay, so um, you got into swords because of this little opera. I think so. I, I'm not sure okay. if the opera came first or the swords came first,
1: because the enthusiasm for both um, <laughs> sort of burst out. And um, all I can remember now is a wonderful blaze of enthusiasm, and I can't remember where the fire
0: started. Okay, yeah, fair enough. Um, all right, so you're not by profession a historical sword person. Um, not at all. But historical music is about bringing a lost physical practice back to life. So clearly parallels with historical martial arts. Right? We're basically engaged in the same pursuit. Yeah. If you look at it from a from far enough away, it's a, people used to do this thing back in the day. We have records of how they did it up to a point. We have like written accounts, and we have instructional manuals, and we have you know, paintings and what have you. Yeah. Um, and we're trying to make it. We're kind of reproduce that sort of activity as closely as we can to how it was done in period. Okay. Yeah, and I think there are a
1: lot of parallels because, I mean, um, in terms of swords, we've got the surviving weapons. Most of those we want to take beautiful care of and conserve them nicely in museums. So we build modern day replicas and we try to understand the old ones. And then once you've got the weaponry, then there's the question of how to use it. And that's exactly the same for us. Um, we've got surviving instruments. Some of those are being used. There's an ethical question about whether we should use them or if we should rather
0: conserve and preserve them for future generations.
1: Does anyway, does using
0: them wear them out? Yeah. I mean, it would with swords, but with a, with a loot. Is the body of them yeah. kind of wear the away? The thing is that to get
1: them into playing condition in the first place, you have to repair them. And ah, any repair okay. is invasive to a certain extent. And and we change the tone a bit. Yeah. And the danger is not just the sound, but the danger is that as you do a repair, this is the ethics of, if you like, of painting restoration, where Mm. you try to do um, a repair to a painting, which looks great from a distance, but when it's inspected under the microscope, you can see exactly what's been done and when, so that it can be unpicked later. Because we're now pretty scathing about the restorations
0: that were done 50 years ago (laughs) speaking as an antiques restorer yeah i've I've, crappy work i've I've restored an awful lot of antique furniture in my time and yeah an awful lot of my antiques restoration work has been undoing the really crappy fixing jobs Mm. of previous um put them in inverted commas restorers yeah so so yeah it's 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 shocking what people will do to lovely old things if you let right. me get away with it. But, let me give an example. Let me give an example. Okay. Yeah, okay go for it. I have just just like last week. I have a copy of Capo Ferro arrived. 1610 original Capo Ferro. I have it in my house. It's in this bookshelf right behind me. And it's in this really crap 17th century binding where basically they took the bound pages mm. and they just covered the outside in vellum. And that's it. I mean, it's, it's, um, actually it's, it's, it's not how we would bind a book today. It's, it's literally just, um, you know, it's got end papers stitched into the choirs and there's vellum is glued to the end paper. And that's it. I mean, it's basically a, the equivalent of a paperback. Yeah. Right. It's got no boards or, or properly constructed, like Spine or anything like that right and I have been asked whether I'm going to get it rebound mm-hmm. because let's face it you know you can bind a book objectively better than this. yeah and it's so beautiful it deserves it right he says like, with with a twin there is design. there is no fucking way on earth I am letting anyone except a trained conservator not restorer conservator mm. touch the binding on this book I will however make a box for it to protect it Mm. so that it can be slid in and out of the bookcase or whatever without, you know, coming to any harm. Because the cover as is doesn't protect the pages very well. Mm. But to my mind, the rather dodgy early 17th century binding on it is part of its value as an artifact. Yeah. Right. So, yeah, the notion of putting a... A proper binding on it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I mean, I've handled, I've handled books from um, the Howard de Walden Library, uh, which is like one of the finest collections of historical fencing manuals on the planet. It's currently the Wallace Collection, and you know, being a is a lord of some description, an earl or a baron or something. I don't, I can't remember his exact rank, but very rich bloke and of a certain standing, and had, you know, the money and the interest to collect all these fencing books. But of course, when he bought a treatise, like like his his copy of capoferro and he's got two, um, he would have them bound properly, right. properly in a verdict. So, so all of his books have been rebound in the early 20th century yeah. to a very high standard. I mean, the bindings are absolutely beautiful, rock solid, full leather, Perfectly professionally done, but it meant losing the old covers. Yeah. And I'm like, dude, you, Mr. Dumb, Lord de Walden, sir. <laughs> if he wasn't dead, I'd slap him. Because, <laughs> yeah, there's there's value in that. But I think that,
1: that thing goes one level further, at least in terms of musical instruments. So, uh, yeah, you know, we, we are very critical of restorations that were done 50 years ago, and yeah. we would now do them so much better. But if we've got any intellectual humility, then we've got to be ready for the fact that 50 years on from now, people right. are going to look at what we were doing and just say, Oh my God, those guys in 2020, <laughs> they were just so out. No um, they had no clue. And yeah. so. You know, we we really owe it to the future generations to to do our best to conserve, preserve, but I I'm really suspicious about about restoration. And also the wear and tear that an instrument gets. Um, you know, if you take it out on the road, touring around, getting it in and out of aeroplanes, changes of temperature and humidity, yeah. being inspected by customs officers and whatever, um, there's inevitable damage, things get lost and whatever.
0: I've I've my mum's a piano teacher and when we lived in Peru, like visiting musical groups would often come and stay at the house or whatever. So she made friends with a group called the Barbican Trio. And when I was living in Edinburgh, they went to Edinburgh and so I had them over for lunch and then I drove them to their rehearsal um, place where they are going to be performing later. So after lunch, I had in this tiny little borrowed car, there's a little Peugeot 205, I had... A pianist, fine. Her piano was at the mm. at, at the concert hall. Obviously, couldn't fit that into two hundred five. But in the back, there was the violinist and the cellist, and the cello was a Stradivarius, and the violin was ah begins with G. What's his name? I don't know, but yeah. But but like these are these are the sorts of instruments that that players don't own. Mm-hmm. Major musical trusts own them, oh, and. Yeah and lend yeah, them to it, yeah. to players of sufficient standard because they're worth millions of pounds. <laughs> so I was driving through the streets of Edinburgh with these yeah. these unbelievably expensive I mean the people might heal if you know we get get into a little bit of a fender bender or somebody breaks an arm. That's unfortunate, but people heal. But those things yeah. I was so worried about about about, you know, being responsible for crushing a Stradivarius—how oh. awful would that be? <laughs> <laughs> but let me just—I I just like to give you a
1: bit of context on that, yeah. Uh, sure. for, for for your listeners, um, so of course there's this whole sort of worship of the of, of the um, these old violins, the big names, the Marty Stradivarius, whatever. All of these instruments, nearly all of them, all of them have been. Significantly rebuilt over the centuries to adapt okay. them for the way that modern violins are used. Ah! Um, so, like, that's the horrible! Angle, the angle of the neck has been changed. No! So that the strings are much higher higher up and that puts more pressure onto the soundboard and things like this. So, the sound of them, of course, has completely changed. That's um, horrible. One or two of them have been rebarocked and put back to their original condition, but very few. Oh, and so this and is a really bizarre, hard to bizarre do. thing. Where if you could imagine in, in, in sort of sword terms, it's like um if you could imagine that the modern day Olympic uh rapier uh sorry, Olympic modern day Olympic foil. um um uh um, epee. epee, I'm thinking epes yeah. actually modern day um, Olympic epee fighters would use a 17th century rapier because they worshipped it so much, but they would have cut it down and rebalanced ah,
0: it to, ah. to, to
1: correspond to the rules for Epe.
0: Listeners, listeners, I apologize. <laughs> <laughs> I normally have better control over, over the horror quotient on this show. And, and those of you who are currently sort of clutching various body parts and squealing, I do apologize for that mental image of absolute horror. Andrew, you should know better. That was, <laughs> <laughs> but yeah. Then, oh God! And affordable. then the other thing that goes with
1: that is yeah. that um, this attitude. Uh, so this is the standard mainstream attitude in mainstream music. So mm. you should have, you know, the best possible, most expensive violin. It will probably be, you know, a sixteenth century or seventeenth century northern Italian violin, but um, will have been adapted in this way. This attitude has spilled over into early music the supposedly historical side of things especially amongst violinists so um in the work i do i my main instrument is the harp so a bit like a a historical swordsman i've got lots of different weapons for the different disciplines Yep. so I've got an Italian harp I've got a Spanish harp I've got an Irish harp I've got a Welsh harp I've got um, 18th century instruments that is to say modern day replicas re- of Yeah, reproductions of yeah. modern day re- reproductions of 17th century 16th century and so on so I've got a whole lot of different weapons which I use accordingly but amongst many violinists even in historical music there's still this sort of heavy overlay of this other way of thinking where you should just have one instrument, the most fantastic inexpensive and, and best one you can so I'm going to add to your nightmare don't only think of um, your epee fencer <laughs> using a cut down and rebalanced 17th century rapier but think of that same fencer using the same weapon also in a sabre competition and in
0: a foil competition <laughs> You're a sadist, uh, sir. <laughs> stop it. <laughs> yeah, and and you know, I think pretty much every swordsman at some point or sword person at some point in their development gets this idea of there is the perfect sword out there somewhere, mm. right? Yeah. And obviously, it's nonsense. It's like there's there's no perfect motor vehicle, right? If you are if you need to pull a plow you want a tractor, and if you want to go zipping around in uh, you know, the country lanes of Suffolk, something like a Lotus might be better. And you can't say one is a superior vehicle to the other. Because, and the same, same with swords, right? It's like a longsword is vastly better than a, uh, should we say, rapier for certain purposes, but change the purposes and the ideal weapon changes. I'm I'm astonished that that you have like professional musicians who are afflicted with the same notion of, um, as yeah. You know, I used to play a trumpet, and every professional trumpet player, if they're not like specific to one discipline, like maybe a jazz trumpeter probably has a whole load of B flat trumpets, mm. right? But that's probably it. Maybe a cornet, maybe a flugelhorn, right? But a a concert trumpeter, Yokohara, for example, um, will have dozens of trumpets mm. because different music from different periods requires a different pitch or a different whatever. So it's it's surprising to me that that these violinists are afflicted with the notion of the one true violin.
1: Yeah, it's. I think it's a special thing for violinists because um,
0: it's a very particular world uh, that that instrument. Are and we trying to say that violinists are a bit special? No,
1: no, no. no, no. They, <laughs> think, they think they don't have no violin friends listening to this. <laughs> no, I think e- seriously, each each instrument, even for those of us who are working in historical music, um, we we're inevitably influenced by the the modern day and the twentieth century mm. uh, associations of the modern equivalent of that instrument. And so, um, yeah, I think especially for an instrument like the violin where so much of its Baroque repertoire is still part of the mainstream modern repertoire.
0: Uh, so right. if,
1: you, if you're a Baroque violinist, then the kind of summit uh, probably is to play things like the Bach Unaccompanied Violin Partitas. Now, those pieces are also Still part of the repertoire for mainstream violinists, and so if if you come at those pieces as a baroque player, you're going to be compared to the mainstream players, and so that's right. rather like perhaps you know if you know you're 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 coming at your Cap- Capo Ferro rapier um, tournament, um, but half the people in the crowd have been watching Olympic Epe and maybe a couple of people in the crowd are themselves Epe Olympians. And uh,
0: so you might feel a little intimidated. Um, Right, yeah. You might want to put some bouncy shit in there just to make them feel like you're doing it properly. Yeah, exactly. Huh. So do you think there are sort of ideas and practices in the music, historical music world that we historical sword people would benefit from? I've
1: thought about that a lot, and I think it's mostly the other way around, But there's a lot happening in the um, historical swordsmanship world that I think musicians could learn from. But I guess okay. the, the, the big difference is... Uh, what are we doing it for, and how we putting it into, into practice? So, for musicians, we've got this whole music business. There are concerts in every city, every night. Mm. Um, well, of course, we've yeah. just had two years in of normal lockdown. times. So, but yeah. in normal times, so there's this whole industry of performance. There's, of course, the CDs and, and all the online performances. So, there's a huge amount of performance happening. And there are audiences out there watching and listening. And that's probably the most significant outcome of whatever work we do as students, as researchers, as practitioners, sure. is all these performances. Whereas I think that's rather different in the swordsmanship world, where a lot of people are – they're not training to go out and put on a show no, um, every no- night. No, there's no –
0: well, there's no, there's no
1: show component at all really right uh, so, so it becomes something you do because you're interested to improve your own understanding your own skills just because you enjoy the activity uh, you enjoy the um, you know the contact with your with with, with mm. your colleagues and your your training partners um,
0: yeah there's no there's no deliverable. I mean, with with musical training, the deliverable is concerts or recordings that other people listen to. But in sourcemanship, there is no deliverable other than your own sense of development and satisfaction or whatever Mm. else you get out of it. Mm.
1: And what that means for music is that um, a lot of the very, very beautiful work that one might do is crowded out by the kind of necessary work of putting on a show
0: tonight. So, right. so is I, that unique do, to professionals? It's it's partly professional. If you're trying to make a living at it, it's it the the structures are a bit different. Yeah, it's partly that, um, and it's partly just
1: the professional side of it is one part of it, but the other part of it is just the the the. the The constant um, requirement to perform, which is the same for amateurs as well. I mean, most amateur musicians. Mm. um, There's plenty of amateur musicians who are very skillful and very interested and informed and active in historical music, and typically they'll do a few rehearsals and they'll do a show, and things are uh, are focused on on doing a performance. And the thing is, to do a performance, one of the main things is that. Nobody wants to make an idiot of themselves on stage in front of the audience. Yeah. So that there's a big requirement to stay safe. I don't mean in the health and safety aspect. Yeah, yeah, yeah mean, but to, but, but, but to but not embarrass something. yourself. Yeah, just just um, and that means um, there's a limit to what you can change. And there's a limit to how fundamental that change can be because you've got two or three rehearsals. In the professional world, you'll have two or three days. In the amateur world, you'll have perhaps, you know, four or five weeks with a weekly rehearsal and a couple of rehearsals just before the gig. And if you're a director, no matter how well informed and skillful and inspiring you might be as a director, part of your job is to keep your people safe in the sense that you're not going to make fools of them. And so you have to dose the amount of change you ask for very carefully. And you have to be really careful with fundamental changes. But those fundamental changes are the most important and the most interesting things. And so if right. you come across some new uh, 17th century manuscript that tells you that the harp should be held upside down and nobody ever knew this um, – Ideally, what you'd like to do is to start experimenting with that and, you know, maybe spend six months trying it out. And eventually you might get to the stage where you could show it to a few colleagues. And eventually you might even get to the stage where you could show it to some audience members. But what you're not going to do is walk into rehearsal and say to the professional harpist you've just hired, oh, by the way, would you would you turn your harp upside down? And, um, you know, now here's some yeah. really difficult music. And, you know, oh, by the way, the whole thing is a live broadcast going all over the world. So no pressure, <laughs> you know. Um, yeah, it's so, um, Fundamental things are very difficult to change. And so what tends to happen is that um, the bef- The sort of application of new historical information in our world of early music tends to be to peripheral things and especially to things that you can write down. So if there's something that you can change by taking the musician's music and changing it in print and giving them different music for them to play from, and they probably don't have to think too much. And they certainly don't have to change their normal physical well, procedures do, yeah. too much. This is really easy to do. And you can do quite noticeable things like this. So one of the revolutions that happened, um, this was back in the 1980s, was that uh, researchers discovered that some music that looked like it was written to be sung and played really high everybody doing really high notes brilliant very very exciting on the limits of what's technically possible actually there was a code in this notation and you're just meant to bring the whole thing down and if anything what's happening is especially low notes you need bases you can get right down to a low d and sing that strongly and support the whole sound with this low bass and this was a big surprise to everybody and we all had to get used to the new sounds, but the um, academic evidence was very, very strong and it was really easy to implement. You right. hire a few extra low bases and you tell the high sopranos to stay home and you just give everybody new music and they sing that. Nobody has to change the way they think except for the conductor.
0: Right. Yeah.
1: And, Director, director. Director, exactly. Well, I'm (laughs) I'm also talking about the sort of kind of, um, die-hard groups that in spite of all the historical evidence do have a conductor still have a conductor and, conductor. Yeah, wow. and those kind of conductors of course they, they really missed their sopranos singing high notes I think many of them were having affairs with those first sopranos so they said <laughs> they the um, no names I, I really mustn't do names no, now no okay. don't do names we let them out though if you do um, but uh, yeah there are still um, some very famous directors of this kind of music um, who will not do it in the, in the, the low version that, um, everybody, everybody else now ex- accepts was intended because they're just so attached to the old sound, you know.
0: But then, okay, music is all about taste and enjoyment. And the thing is, if you listen to both and decide you like the high one, then that's the one you should have and listen to yeah yeah, and, I, I mean yeah. If you're, it's just, it's just you shouldn't shouldn't present it as this is how it was probably done historically.
1: And there we go. And so I think you know if you're a hobby fencer and um you enjoy playing around a little bit with Capo Ferro, but you like doing it with your Epe, if you're having fun with that, well, have <laughs> fun, but you'll probably find that bits of it don't work so well. Yeah. and that can be the point that makes you think, hang on a minute, maybe, you know, there's, you know, Why does he ask me to do this crazy thing That doesn't work with my epé why, Let me try it with a rapier, a half
0: Yeah, that's a good point um, Okay Now, I know you read maths at Cambridge And Vadi, for one, like swordsmanship, to music and geometry Okay, so How do you find your maths helps with your Musical research, and how does that Translate to swords? Directly Maths is supposed
1: to have a big connection to music. Um, And actually, there are a lot of mathematicians who end up being professional musicians. But I don't think it's so much to do with numbers as such, because most musicians don't really count beyond three, sometimes (laughs) four. And historically, actually, you only count as far as two. And if the music's going in three, you just go one, two, one, two.
0: Oh, really? So you don't okay.
1: need the number three so much. Okay. Um, now, in this continuo playing that I do, the way the notation works is they give you the bass note and they put a number underneath that. And that number tells you how far up to count for the next note you need to add to the chord. So if they write the number three, you play the bass note and you play three notes above. So if the bass note was C, C, D, E, you would add an E to it. So numbers are involved in this continuo playing that I do all the time. but And sometimes if there's a very complicated harmony, they'll write a whole load of numbers um, underneath the bass note, and you've got to put all these notes oh into God. the chord. But actually, nobody at an advanced level reads those numbers as numbers. No. You see notes. a note... And a number, and it instantly tells you actually not even notes to play, but it t- it tells your fingers where to go.
0: Yeah, so it's a chord.
1: It's a chord, and I with a horrible joke, it's a kind of spinal chord reaction, <laughs> in the sense right. that when I see a note with a big set of numbers underneath it, I don't sit there and start counting. None Noth- nothing's going through my head, but my fingers have already gone to the right place. Um so although you do a little bit with numbers in that way, it's kind of trained out of you once you get along with it. What I think is much more significant about mathematics connection is the way of thinking. So if you do maths at a higher level, it's teaching you a way of thinking. So one of the things, for example, that a very standard way to ask a question at sort of university level mathematics is you, you write down a plausible equation. It looks really nice. And you invite the candidate either to prove that this equation is true or to give a counterexample that disproves it. This is a lovely question, because you can, if you, if you go off in the wrong direction, you can waste a whole lot of time trying to prove something true that isn't, or looking for counterexamples for something which is actually true, so there won't be any counterexamples. So it's, it's, it's a fun way to pose a question, but it establishes a certain way of thinking, which is you see a plausible statement, and you're more immediately thinking, can I verify this, or can I disprove it? And you're, you're looking at it in this very sort of sharp way. And the statement might be very plausible. So you might even run with that statement for a while and hmm. use it and see what begins to happen. But as a mathematician, you keep a certain intellectual distance from it. So in another way, in maths, we create what we call mathematical objects. So we can you know, define a set with some kind of complicated rules for what makes the members of that set. And we can define operations in that set. We can have a lot of fun with this. And we can imagine that this might tell us something about the real world, but actually it's only a mathematical object. And at a certain point, probably our set of mathematical rules stops fitting the real world anymore. And at that point, we don't say that our maths is wrong. Or that the real world is wrong. We just notice, aha, our hypothesis is no longer fitting our observations,
0: it's and that exactly makes us very dispassionate.
1: Exactly. This makes us very dispassionate about. Um, we can get involved with a hypothesis, but we don't have to. Uh, we don't have to be totally committed to it. And I think this is just such a great training for research that you can work with a plausible idea and you can get very involved with it and you could use it. But you all the time in the back of your mind, you know, it only takes one counterexample to destroy the whole thing. And that destruction, although it's kind of a bit sad if the hypothesis has become a good friend, but that destruction will actually advance you in the end.
0: And I think yeah. that's such a good position, a mental position to be in. That That is exactly what the historical research process is like for swordship. Of, but like, you come up with this idea of, of how this particular technique is done, and it matches the text as best as you know it, and it matches the pictures as best as you can see the pictures. And so it might be true, and it kind of fits into the rest of the system, and it seems to work, and da da da. And then. It may turn out to be correct, or it may turn out to be correct with minor changes, or it may turn out to be well, it works, but it's not what the person was actually telling us to do in that on that particular page. Because like the the whole set of possible martial arts actions is enormous, and any given historical system is a subset of that, and any given historical master's written treatise is a even smaller subset of that. And so even if something works, it may not necessarily be the thing that that particular answer is telling us to do. And having having that... Um, but, you know, when you're testing it under pressure at speed and with sharp swords and what have you, you have to believe it, mm. right? Or Or you're not giving it a fair shot. Mm. You know, you're not giving it a fair chance to succeed unless you actually believe it. But if you believe it to the point that it's become an article of faith then you have strayed from the path completely. Yeah.
1: Yeah. And I think this is this is the really fun part about being involved with a discipline which is both academic, there's a research element to it, and practical, uh, right. there's a real world element to it. And they depend on each other. Um, I think probably in our respective disciplines, we both sometimes get a little frustrated with the academics who don't have practical experience and they there are just things they you don't know absolutely. about... I was going to say being at the sharp end but I think facing the sharp <laughs> end is what
0: would be more appropriate yeah um, and, there's and a- you also see a complete I mean a willful disregard for the scholarship done over the last quarter of a century in books written even in the last 20 years like, mm. like we knew we've known for 25 years at least that medieval martial arts were sophisticated activities which have like Quite a lot of written records as to how they went, and those records indicate that it is very, very far from just mindless bashing each other over the head with swords, right? Um, and yet, you know, in the 21st century, people have been writing absolute shit about how medieval sword fighting is basically just, you know, illiterate thugs blattering each other with weapons of might as well, just these clubs. You know, yeah. it's, it's, yeah, to my mind, it's, it's not the, it's not the. I haven't got the physical experience, and so I don't know that's the problem. It's the, your physical experience doesn't matter because it's not written down by somebody who I respect from a hundred years ago mm. or whatever. That's that's the, the main issue. Yeah. yeah. Like we have we have nineteenth century historians of, of martial arts. I mean, the most famous example of this is obviously Egerton Castle's Schools of Master of Fence where he says pretty much on the first page that the foil is the epitome of all fencing. And he refers to the rough, untutored fighting of the Middle Ages, which is just, okay, he probably didn't have access to the sources that we have access to, and he made a, you know, an absolute outright, perfectly, I think intellectually honest, mistake, right? He's not always right. as As a human being, you wouldn't expect him to be always right, right? But later historians of fencing have just uncritically taken Castle's word for it. I just dismissed everything before about 1550 as the rough, untutored fighting of the Middle mm. Ages. And that makes me want to slap people, because it's, it's like, like how, how can you think that a culture that produced armour like this, and weapons like that, and music like this, and musical instruments mm. like that, and buildings like this, and mm. paintings like that, would then have some sort of clumsy, thuggish foolishness as they're fighting art? It doesn't yeah. make any sense. Yeah. but this there's, 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 I, I went off on a little rant there. <laughs> no, no, no. no I, 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 I,
1: we, we musicians have our own version of it. And there's a very similar thing um, that in mainstream music, this idea of evolution of musical instruments, like evolution of weapons. Oh, God. Um, so Wrong
0: word. That the, um, you know, the modified, Change over time is acceptable. Absolutely. Change over time. But evolution suggests better fitted to environment. Exactly. Which... Yeah. Yeah. And and so there's, uh, there is the idea that, you know, the
1: modern forms of instruments are the highest development of those instruments yeah. and the early instruments are primitive. Um, and that idea is held even by people who then go back and want to play those Bach unaccompanied violin partitas because they see those as the summit of violin composing but they seem to have a blind spot when it comes to the idea that nevertheless, you should play this 18th century music on a modern violin because that's the summit of the violin. Um,
0: Yeah. I think we do have technical developments that make, that make like materials objectively better in some ways Mm. and ways of sticking materials together, objectively better in some ways. And, you know, Processes for producing these things which are more accurate and more consistent and what have you. Right. So you can get you can make things today that were impossible to make a hundred years ago. Mm -hmm. But if you have a look at watchmaking from the late 17th century and think of the tools that these people had to make like watches, like clocks with, Mm. it's absolutely astonishing what they were able to do. Right. And you know, in woodwork too, like the tools, the steel that they had for making their tools out of was compared to what we make. You know, you can go to your local, not even a proper tool shop, but a supermarket and get a set of cheap, shitty chisels, which no professional cabinet maker would look at twice, usually. Right? But if you actually sharpen them up in terms of steel quality, um, they are vastly better than anything that Grindling Gibbons or Chippendale had right but the notion that what they were using wasn't state of the art at the time is a bit silly but also changes to the changes to the the implement changes how you use it so for example you see in modern tournament fencing uh, long tour tournament fencing we're talking modern steels produced with modern methods and they can take a hell of a beating you do that to a medieval sword, and you'll break it in an hour. Right or well less, right? Because the because um, <clears throat> the way the sword is made is different, and the steel is different. The way you have to kind of look after it is different. It reminds me of learning to fly. Because the plane I'm learning to fly on, Cessna One Five Two, was built in 1974, mm-hmm. and it has this engine, which is basically the thing that's keeping you alive in the air, right? And an awful lot of what you have to do when flying is look after your engine, make sure it's not running at too low revs for too long or too high revs for too long, and make sure you pull out the carb heat every now and then so if any ice is is building up in the carburetor, it gets melted through. All that sort of thing, right? It's really critically important, and you are you're like a steward of the engine, right? Whereas, and that was also true for people driving cars in the nineteen forties. Mm. Yeah. In a modern car, practically no modern driver is a steward of the engine. They don't have to care. It's got a fuel injection. It's got all sorts of like controls and stuff on it that mean that it'll run for a really long time without any maintenance at all. It needs a bit of maintenance every now and then. And after at some point, it becomes too expensive to fix because it's sufficiently complicated that fixing it becomes pointless to so say you just get a new engine or a new car, probably a new car, right? right. And so the way you use the tool, because the tool has changed, the way you use it has had to change. And so you will do things with the new one that you wouldn't do with the old one because you break it. Mm. And if you're trying to figure out what people were actually doing historically, you need to take that into account, Mm. right? Because could they have done it like this? Well, we can do it with modern swords. But if you did that with a, a proper medieval sword, made in the medieval fashion with medieval materials, you're going to almost certainly catastrophically damage it. So no, this can't be the way that they're telling us to do it.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, one of of the examples, I mean, from my instrument, um, so my main instrument is the harp. And once you've got the frame of a harp, you've built the thing, basically the higher tension you crank the strings up to, uh, the better it will sound. So you try and put high-tension strings on, but there's a lot of strings on a harp. And although a harp is a nice triangular frame, the strings are just that little bit asymmetric. And so everything twists and bends. And so basically a a harp is a machine for for breaking wood. You know, (laughs) triangular frame, you crank up a whole lot of strings on it. Every time the tension on those strings lessens a bit, as the thing deforms, you just crank the tension back up again to where it was. And so eventually the, the wood breaks. So that's what, you know, a harp in the long term is a machine for breaking wood. And nowadays, modern makers, even makers of um, replica historical instruments, basically the main structural parts, they laminate uh, because it's just hugely mushroom. increases the strength of them. Yeah. and as far as we can tell, that doesn't really affect the sound in, to, in any noticeable way. Mm-hmm. And so the temptation then is, of course, you know, to crank up more tension than they ever could have had back then. Um, realistically, I think the decent use of that extra safety margin of strength is that, you know, with my harp, I have to travel, it has to go on and off planes, it goes through the kind of changes of temperature and humidity that a historical instrument wouldn't have gone through so quickly. So it gives me a little safety margin there. But um, it is certainly true that there's a big temptation just to to, to put more tension on them than would have been available back then. And then you come to, um, I, I think one of the things about all these historical disciplines, whether it's music or um, sword fighting, is that they're very holistic. Every single little bit uh, of the whole practice fits together with the other bits. And so it's true, if you put more string tension on, you get a more brilliant, more resonant sound. But then that sound is more brilliant and resonant than they were really dealing with. And so you probably have to change something else. Yeah, what else do you have to change to... And now it all sort of ricochets through the system. And so when you think you've improved something, almost certainly a better word for that is changed. Um, and you've really got to ask yourself, you know, what is the real benefit of this change? And what are the, what are the hidden consequences? Uh, and the story of musical instrument, uh, restoration and also reconstruction is full of examples where in the early 20th century, when this sort of game of doing historical music really got going and people started building reproduction instruments um, with the idea of playing the old music on a reproduction of an old instrument and trying to understand how it worked at its own time. As that got going, there were many things where we looked at the design of an old harpsichord and said, ah, you know, that's so inefficient. That's such a stupid way of doing things. We can do it yeah, so yeah. much better nowadays. Yeah. So we apply the modern techniques and the modern possibilities. A few decades on, there's suddenly an aha moment where you see where was what was an, an apparent limitation or defect or inefficiency actually becomes something very useful in the whole art and yeah. how it connects together to a whole lot of other things and um, yeah then you go back and change things and I think that's hmm. that's true on the level of of making the replica instruments but it's also true on a very nitty gritty level of the uh, the physicality of techniques so I can give an example from um, this is from harp playing but it also applies to um, keyboard playing. So if you think of a harpsichord or a historical organ, and, and anybody listening, if, if you've played a bit of piano, you can imagine this. So when you were a kid and you learnt your first scales, typically the idea is to use the fingers really efficiently, make all that motion really smooth, so as you get better... The smoothness allows you to speed it up and it goes yeah. smooth and smoothly and as fast as you like. And so the typical scale fingering, um, on a piano, just so you sort of like put your hands on the table and imagine it. So I'm, I'm using my right hand. So I'll start a low note with my thumb and I'll go one, two, three. And I put my thumb underneath and now I can go one, two, three, four, five. That sets it up to eight notes. That's my scale. And I practice that little underneath crossing movement of my thumb and get it all beautifully smooth. And that was the agony of my childhood was practicing (laughs) scales and arpeggios. And boy, am I glad I was forced to do it. (laughs) Now I'm glad about that because that gave me the, the finger control. And so that seems like a really great system and it really is well worked out to give you a beautiful smooth scale and you can speed that up a lot. It's not what they were doing back then and um a typical fingering from back then might go one two three four and then three four and then three four again with lots of little crossovers and those crossovers are happening with the big fingers so you can't like smoothly take your thumb under while the other fingers are still playing it's really kind of lumpy movement it's really inefficient um so that's obviously bad, and we, we improved that a whole lot in the, in, in the 19th century. Yeah. And so most people who started off studying early music started playing their 16th and 17th century music with those 19th century fingerings because the, the fingerings are so efficient, they're so good. But they're really efficient at giving you a very, very smooth, even sound. And that's not what the sa- that's not the sound they wanted back then. Right. What they wanted back then was a deliberately uneven sound. So, not to be smooth in the way we think of, um, you know, classical piano playing nowadays. Yeah. Very smooth, very, very rapid. But rather to be a little bit bumpy, like the way somebody speaks. Because when you speak, you don't speak in a continuous sound like this. Yeah. Um, oh, here's a great example. Um, so can I say, is that yeah. sublime rather than beautiful? Yeah, or communicative rather than beautiful. Okay, interesting. Yeah. So um, but the, the, the comparison in sound is some, um, um, I'm old enough to remember when they switched the uh, national railways in the UK from um, short sections to continuous welded track. And if you're on the salt sections, you hear what we all know from our childhood train sounds like. Yeah. If you're on continuous welded track, it sounds like.
0: Yeah. And that makes me sick. I'm fine. But the continuous one, oh my God, I get so sick. Well, that's basically the, the difference between mainstream music and early music.
1: New, early music is broken up into short, very articulate moments. And mainstream music is. Very, very fast. Very, very even. Um, it's just another world. And so, of course, those early fingerings that are so inefficient, they're inefficient, but in a very clever way. The, the, the bits that are lumpy are deliberately put where you want there to be a little break right. in the smooth running of it. And the bits that go continuously are in the bits that you want to go continuously so it's very very well adapted for its own purpose Um, and certainly yeah if you want to play some piece of 19th century music very continuously and fast those early techniques will trip you up all the time they're not designed to do that but if you're trying to get that historical sound then they're absolutely
0: the way to go how do you know about how fingering was done back then this kind of nitty gritty, I think this is perhaps one of the areas where we
1: musicians are in a more fortunate position than swordsmen. We have a lot of books with a lot of nitty gritty. So okay. we've got the books that talk about the grand philosophy and some of that there's, there's beautiful stuff in the sword books of how sword fighting, you know, sort of relates to the cosmos and all of this. Mm-hmm. So, and, and that stuff is actually very relevant um, to what you're doing as a swordsman. It's not just, you know, sort of, okay, here's a beautiful story. Flip the pages through. Let's get to the bit where we stab people.
0: Well, that's um, what most of us actually
1: do in the beginning, to be honest. <laughs> <laughs> but you come back to that stuff because you realise yeah, yeah. that there's, there's very subtle stuff hidden there. Musicians are in the same position. Um, we've got some of these books that talk about this very sort of dreamy stuff. And because it's so dreamy, the practical application of it is not so obvious. And so many people don't bother with it. I think it's got a lot to tell us, but you do have to think about it for a while. But in music, we then have the books that are talking about music in general in a practical way. So those books... Um those books are good for directors, they're good for anybody who's wanting to understand the music in general. And then we've got specific books, how to play the flute, how to play the harpsichord, how to play the violin, how to play the harp. And these books go into enormous amounts of really small detail. Actually, the challenge there is that there's so much small detail. The challenge is to see to see the wood for the trees, you know um you've got you know you can have hundreds of pages of these books and we've got several books and so for an academic just working on one of these books could be your lifetime career as an academic just going deeper and deeper into this one book but if you're a performer uh you need some kind of overview and so you're probably going to use several books and you You know, there just isn't time to get into all of them so deeply. And this is probably the danger for us in music, is that because we've got so many sources, we tend to skate a bit thin over all of them. So one of the things that really inspired me when I first got involved with historical sword fighting was that you could spend a whole year of study. In fact some people spend the whole of their career, their life's work, and I'm not just talking about sort of really specialized academics, I'm talking about people who do historical sword fighting. And there there are people who are rapier fencers and they may basically do Capo Ferro for all their career. Yeah. Or oh, they have a little on, bit yeah. of side reading with one of the other sources, but they're essentially
0: a Capo yeah. Ferro person. Right. I mean any any good rapier fencer um will have usually a specialization in a specific master's approach but even the most intensely specialized person in that area will be familiar with the other contemporary sources a bit earlier a bit later and also the ones like sort of side by side um, because you not least what If, if you've only ever read Capoferro and you studied Capoferro and you practice Capoferro and you come up against someone who has, who is, is totally immersed in Fabris, Mm. you're going to see stuff that you have never seen before. Mm. And if you haven't studied it first, they're going to stab you with it. (laughs) So, so you need, you need to know your enemy. Um, ah, quick break to say hello to the, (laughs) ah, Oh Vlad. <laughs> Let me just make a quick note of the time. We might Ah oh, well if if just listen, if I, if I room don't room edit room this room out room. Yes, uh, Andrew's very young son is right there. Hello Hello We we are doing daily practice
1: of um, stringering and um, uh, campione, um yeah. with spoon. Yes, feeding. I have the spoon spoon with the food on it. He has the other spoon. And um, you have to kind of get past his
0: defences to get the food. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Excellent. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, bless. I was kind of hoping I'd get to meet Arthur Adam today. Oh.
1: Oh. How old is he now? uh, He's just one. His birthday was last week but that was while oh, I was down with COVID so we, we, we were all in quarantine and we couldn't celebrate so the, the yeah. um, party's this week
0: and I, I honestly I, at that age he doesn't care as long as there's cake <laughs> <laughs>
1: <laughs> ah yeah and now we have to postpone because his best friend is, is quarantining so oh, um, no. we've got to
0: wait till we're all we're all good oh. yes the pen is mightier than the spoon
1: Mm-hmm.
0: <laughs> oh, I remember when mine were that age yeah it's this is age. a lovely
1: age he's very communicative um, he's crawling not yet walking so yeah. um, he's got a sort of a, a, a bit of sort of uh, auto mobility and yeah um, and, and he's, he's getting better and better expressing what he wants and yes. super expressing what he doesn't want, you know. <laughs>
0: yes, <laughs> no is the, the first you, word. You know, yeah, yeah. exactly. You know, that yeah. Oh.
1: And the whole thing is just completely life changing, as is you know.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Well I, I I have a have it down on my thing to ask you about about how how that's 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 happened. Um well, what is inspiring to see is the flexibility range of
1: movement and the way he's experimenting the whole time with motor and balance skills.
0: It's just, just right. And I learned a lot about how, how students learn fencing by watching my children learn to walk. Right. Right. And also just the
1: quality of concentration. There's a, yeah. an, an amazing sort of quality of relaxed focus, just, just about everything. Yeah. And, Everything he, I mean, his whole world, his whole sort of activity, the whole time is, is it play or is it learning? And the answer is both all the time. And there is no difference. There's, um, and I think, you know, there's a great lesson because, you know, we, we, we tend to sort of say, okay, you know, now this is serious. I, I I want to learn something serious. (laughs) I get get out of play mode. And we, we just, we just lose a lot by doing that, you know. Yeah. That's not to say that when he's playing, he isn't serious. He's totally focused. You know, yes. it's, it's, well, play is important. Yeah,
0: yeah. It's, um, it's, it's. Okay, so while he sat on your lap, let me ask you the question and you can. Okay. <laughs> so uh, listeners can't see, but um, Andrew's uh, one year old son has just entered the room and is currently on his lap. So this is a perfect opportunity to ask this question. So you've recently become a parent. Um, what aspects of your music and or martial arts have been most useful in learning this new and very important skill of parenting? Well,
1: certainly at feeding time, um, I'm honing my swordsmanship skills uh, <laughs> with feints. Um, actually, I'm finding that the, um, the defense and attack in a single tempo is one of the most effective uh, tactics so that um, you know, when he puts out his empty spoon, Rather than you know stopping his spoon and then trying to get my loaded spoon with some good food into his mouth, I'm finding that if I can do all that in one tempo, this this works really well. <laughs> um, so yeah, uh, yeah rape, the, the 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 rapier training is coming in handy, um, and, and yeah, it's it's just inspiring to to watch him to watch him learn things and and this way in which his 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 play is a learning activity, and his learning activity is play. There's just absolutely no difference between them. And I, I find that inspiring as an attitude to have towards study, that you're just totally in it. You're having fun, but the fun is serious. Um, and also the amazing dedication. I mean, he basically eats, plays, and sleeps. Um, right. And um, yeah, for him, that's his mission right now. And so he, he just gets on with it.
0: Yeah. And i I'm, yeah, when, when my kids were little, I was just blown away by, by how quickly they learn complex things. Yeah. And I think one of the key things is they have no self awareness or self consciousness. So they're not, they don't care how they look doing something. Yeah. They have no sense of being, you know, sort of externally judged. So the only feedback mechanism they care about is. Related directly to the thing they're actually doing So if they're learning to walk Mm. Gravity will tell you whether you're walking correctly or not Right, if you get where you want to go And you didn't fall over That's by definition correct And if you land on your ass halfway there Then obviously you've done something wrong on the way And because it's completely consistent And it's completely dispassionate It's fine And yeah, if the falling down hurt Then you might cry a bit Um, But if if the falling down Doesn't hurt, you just sort of get back up and carry on and and there's no you don't ever see them going well i fell down and so i'm not going to do any more walking because i don't really like it anymore because it's a bit embarrassing to be falling down all the time and i proved myself at the same time and it was just a, just not good and no i'm not going to do that ever again like, they just don't do it they just don't they don't have that that judgment yeah and i think it's the absence of judgment that really helps yeah i
1: mean i've it's also fascinating to see the, the range of movement and the gradual acquiring of movement skills. And one of the things I noticed in the early days especially was um, how fast he could, for example, fling out an arm because um, it, it, it's, it's this trade-off of um, speed and control. So yeah. he would fling out an arm and he's not using the opposing muscles to control that movement, it just goes straight out, and there's yeah. a lot of oomph behind it. It's not very well controlled, okay. so his accuracy wasn't so good, but the speed was amazing, and it makes it, it really brought home to me that control and speed are in a way their trade offs. Um, yeah, and the way to optimize is trying to minimize the um, the amount of sort of standing on the accelerator and the brake at the same time. So uh, right. as a musician, um, if you're trying to sort of efficiently move a finger from one string to another, um, because you don't want to overshoot, you might have the metaphorical brakes on already as you start yeah. moving your finger, and that's going to slow you down. Actually, in the long run, it may even injure you.
0: And, and it goes, goes to how people, when people are cutting with, with swords, for example, there's uh-huh. there's this tendency to, they call it pulling the blow. <clears throat> Which is a horrible way of expressing it because you should never ever pull a blow, right? If you want, if you don't want to hit the person, the blow should naturally stop. Yeah. Before it hits the person. Yeah, it shouldn't right? be intended to hit and then stopped at ninety-nine percent. Right, it and should, it should go a hundred percent. But that includes. Yeah, it goes, goes hundred. Yeah, and and you're organizing a structure that will naturally stop the sword. It mm. will stop it passively. You're not catching it in flight. You're just. You're just sending it to a different endpoint. Mm. And and so basically getting out of your own way. I think mean, you see it all the time when people are like preparing wow. to strike. There shouldn't be a preparation. Whatever position you're in, you should be able to strike. Otherwise, yeah. why would you be in that position? Right? So if you have to modify the position to make the strike happen, You would have a place to start with, yeah. Right. And there's an awful lot of getting a student from clumsy beginner to Graceful fencer is getting rid of all of those internal restrictions. Ah, oh, yeah, this is very parallel with um,
1: uh, technical training in music, um, where one of the real secrets, I you know, uh, for keyboard or harp players, it's just exactly this, getting rid of any unnecessary movement. So when we do slow practice, one of the things you're looking for is that your finger moves just exactly from point A to point B and doesn't go to point C or hesitate or, you know, do a little diversion or something um, or overshoot and come back. And those things you can do quite easily if you slow it down enough. Um, but, it's one of the things that's, that's very noticeable about the best players is that there's just no wasted movement. Yeah. Um, e- everything is, is just, yeah,
0: it's just exactly what's needed. Yeah. And that, that comes from lots and lots and lots of practice. And you see it in every discipline. I, I go indoor climbing regularly and the experienced climbers, they very rarely grab and then adjust their grip or put a right. foot on a, in onto a toe hold and then adjust the foot position it just goes to the right place every time so they're less tired when they get to the top because they have done less work getting there and the yeah. same absolutely the same is true with, with swordsmanship right if, when you're doing it right it doesn't feel like exercise because it's only the necessary motion and the necessary motion isn't that much um, now there are a couple of questions that I need to ask you, um, as because I am actually particularly fascinated by your answers on this one. Um, what is the best idea you haven't acted on? <laughs> I, you, you gave me warning of this question, and I
1: realised yes. it was a real kind of wake-up call question because actually, I have a lot of ideas that I don't act on, and I have a lot of ideas that I tinker around with and enjoy immensely and don't actually put out there and um so i'm really grateful for this question because in 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 the whole of my professional life i've mostly responded to things that have come in so somebody invites me to do a concert or to direct an opera and i'm really happy about that Um, and i say yes please and so that leads to you know some research and some you know, skill training or whatever, and uh, a project in music is going to probably lead to a show. Meanwhile, there are all these things that interest me that I get started with, but many of those just, um, yeah, they just still sort of stay there. And you ask this question and I'm thinking, yeah, I've got a computer full of great ideas. And, Rather than polishing them more and more and more, I should just take two or three of the good ones and kick them out there and start having some fun with them.
0: I I would suggest take one of the good ones and kick it out there. Yeah. Right. Well, because if you take two or three, you you're already your focus is split. Pick one, yeah. get it out the door, and then pick the next one.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, yeah. Um, so what is the what what of all the of all the things on your hard drive that you think you ought to get? out into the world what would be the top of your list well to give a crowd-pleasing answer (laughs) in this
1: interview okay um one of the things on my list um it's a project you and i have been discussing of taking fiore's um teaching material for longsword actually for, for all the medieval weapons taking these little verses that he writes and setting those to music and making a musical literary sword um yeah well okay weapon art of
0: weapons Do, evening with we how we have the book we've 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 written the book haven't we Yep.
1: Yeah. we Can have we the add? book
0: we have good music we
1: have good uh, musical performers, we have good um, swordsmanship performers, and the musical world, my world of concerts, um, is sort of r- gradually reopening and trying to shake off the effect of the last couple of years. So this is a really great moment to come up with this completely different kind of um, multimedia show I think it could be a lot of fun for all kinds of audiences but it's also a very very high quality academic and aesthetic and cultural um yeah pro- project so that's what I that's what I really do want to go go with it's if I'm really honest um be honest then there's another project which is perhaps even closer to my heart um which is that um, one of the great works of the 17th century, uh, one of the greatest masterpieces, has come down to us as a tiny fragment, a wonderful fragment, but a tiny fragment. So this is the opera Ariana by Monteverdi, probably my hero composer, same composer of this um, combatimento we were talking about before. And it was his masterpiece. He said that, you know, we've got another opera by him that we think is wonderful and everybody else thought it was wonderful but he says that this ariana was even better and it just eclipsed the earlier work but the opera itself doesn't survive all that survives is one famous scene um, and we do have a lot of information about this opera we've got the complete libretto the text that was sung we've got lots of letters about how it was written and we know a lot about how Monteverdi would have written it so um, a couple of I've done it already Guy a couple of years ago I sat down and we did a performance it worked and we're doing another performance and um, the existing fragment is at the heart of what we've done and so um I'm certainly not saying that I'm Monteverdi, but what I am saying is I'm giving audiences the chance to experience this famous fragment in In a full context. So here's the way to imagine it. Just imagine if Shakespeare's Hamlet had come down to us with all the descriptions of what an amazing drama it was, but the only actual thing we had was to be or not to be and the rest of that speech. An amazing speech. People love to perform it anyway, but wouldn't it be great to have the whole drama... To put it in its yeah. context. And so that's what I've tried to do with this Arianna.
0: And, and you've done it. So I've, what's, I've, I've, what's, I've done it. So what's missing? To,
1: uh, what's missing is me being actually a little bit more courageous and putting it out there and um, getting performances to happen. So like publishing it as
0: a piece of music or?
1: No, actually uh, sending it round to the agents who uh, place projects like this in festivals or in opera houses, writing oh, okay. directs for festivals. So where I've performed at a certain festival last year or in the current circumstances three years ago, writing back to them and saying, yep, yeah, you know, I could come and do, you know, such and such a project of 17th century music, but you know, here's this really exciting thing that is, hasn't been done and would you like Ariana by Monteverdi and Lawrence King? Yeah. Um, do so, it. yeah, that's the big, that's, that's,
0: that, that's, that's the big. I mean, one. you've written it, you just have to send it out. Yeah. Yeah. Ah, okay. Listeners, if you think that's a good idea, feel free <laughs> to send me an email for me to forward to Dr. <laughs> Andrew Lawrence King saying, get off <gasps> your ass, sir, and send this out into the world and stop being a wuss. Yeah, that, that, that pretty much sums it up. <laughs> <laughs> Brilliant. Okay. That's an excellent answer to the question. But uh-huh. if you want to, if you want, um,
1: listeners, I'd also say, if you're interested, in seeing a dramatized show where you you hear Fiori's words being recited and sung, and then you see those actions happening and all of that put into a, a nice little storyline and featuring some of your favourite swordsmen and, and swordspeople, um, then uh, yeah,
0: send those postcards to Guy as well. <laughs> okay. Alright, my last question. If you had a million quid to spend improving either historical music or historical martial arts, which discipline would get the money? Why? And how would you spend it?
1: So, how to spend it, I think, is the same for either discipline. And the how to spend it is by fostering and helping uh, grassroots activities and I would say, amongst teenagers. So people old enough to have some basic skills um, and to take the thing seriously enough, but at this impressionable age where you can give them things that could mean something for the whole of their lives. One of the statistics we know in music is that most people listen for pleasure to the music that meant the most to them when they were teenagers. That's very so true. You, you might encounter other kinds of music later in life and you might enjoy it, but the stuff that really touches you is what you heard when you were a teenager. I saw this 80s music, is, baby. Yeah, well, 80s yeah. all the way. Yeah, so yeah. there we go. So okay. uh, the age, you know, you, you, you always say grab them young, uh, but I think uh, for these sort of high level activities like serious music, like a serious investigation of historical sword fighting, I think the age is... As, as teenagers. And I remember when I was training in Helsinki being very impressed by, I think he was a 16 year old student you had there who, who was really one of the, he, he, he was really a student to admire, not just for his skills, but more for his attitude to the study. I think he, you're probably talking about Jan.
0: Yeah. 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 yeah um, he started when he was 10, but he was really unusual. Yeah. In that most, he's the youngest um student who started and continued on i mean 10 is the youngest we've ever had like actually starting was also 10 but it, a week or two and it was like actually this isn't really the right environment for him um but jan for some reason was able to able to kind of fit in with the thing and yeah it was he's in his mid 20s now and he's still <laughs> the thing about it though is if I told him do this exercise like once a day for five minutes every day without fail for a month either to fix an injury or something he would do it exactly as I told him to do it and so he became this kind of unstoppable tank <laughs> and a very very nice young man but anyway yeah. Yeah. Um, so so so
1: I think, I think the you thing in the music world um, is perhaps the training that um, it used to be just boys, but now it's boys and girls get in the cathedral choir schools. Right, get, yeah. Um, so the training in the choir, of course, it's a great music training. You're performing, you go out into the cathedral and you sing um, nearly every day. So you get not only training, but you get to apply that training regularly. You yeah. learn all your stuff about um, you know, getting past performance anxiety and mm-hmm. optimizing your, your performance in the moment where it really matters. You learn team discipline, you learn, um, you know, looking after your fellow team members, all those kind of things. And um, in the context of a cathedral choir, you learn a lesson that the thing that you're doing, what you yourself do is part of some higher calling That calling could be the team in the cathedral situation. Of course, there's a religious aspect to it. I don't honestly think that's the most important part. I think the part that there is something beyond you and your petty concerns—that's the important part. And that in that in the sword um, context, that can be you know the well-being of your school, that the team you've got of of your training partners. It can be the advancement of the art itself. But I think it's really, really healthy to have a feeling that you're putting in a big effort, not only to improve yourself, but also for something, something beyond that. I think that that something beyond is just really important.
0: I agree. So how, what would you actually do with the money? Um, put programs in schools? Put pro- Yeah. Put programs
1: in schools, community okay. centers. Um, People who seem to be, who seem to benefit the most, who are helped the most or advanced the most by music training and sword training, I think, tend to be people who are in certain ways, in other ways, perhaps sort of square pegs in round holes.
0: Misfits um, and outsiders. Yeah, yes, absolutely. And so true. you
1: know, if you if you thrive in the normal atmosphere of a school, <laughs> then you're team. a weirdo,
0: and, yes, <laughs> and swords are not for you.
1: <laughs> yeah, you know, there the, there are the people who just get on really well with football and hockey. Oh um, God, yes, all, they are. All all power to them. You know, in, yes. enjoy, be captain of the school, have fun. But there's a lot of people out there who who do something else, and um, these, I, I think, also. There are people for whom the combination of physical practical skills and an acad- academic or intellectual element, with those things coming together, those yeah. th- those things can, be can, can just be can really spark things off. So, I, I have a friend who had a tough time at school, but his thing was carpentry, and um, carpentry to start with, and boats afterwards, and this completely. You know this, this, this saved him, if you like. Yeah. Um, and he wasn't an academic high flyer, but actually, both those disciplines have got a thinking element as yeah. well as a doing element, and you, you, you can't have one without the other. So, um, yeah, programs in schools, programs in community centers for the people who were just not even fitting into the school system at all, who need to find something outside. Yeah. Uh, another good friend of mine in my previous home back in Guernsey, um, set up a, a modern fencing uh, school. And he set it up. He's actually a priest. And he set it up as a pastoral mission to look after the people who weren't fitting into the regular social structures of the school.
0: Oh, and, bless him.
1: And and it worked a treat. You know, there, there are mm. people who, you know, some of them became great fencers. Some of them were just average fencers, but suddenly they had a group of friends, they had an activity three or four nights a week, and they were fit and healthy. And if you learn to wield a sword, I think this is one of the things that people don't understand who don't do martial arts. I think a lot of people out there are kind of worried that, oh, if you do martial arts, it will turn you into a violent, you know, crazed idiot. But on the whole, it gives people a kind of quiet confidence and I, I remember one of the first things I learned um, with swords was just the the kind of don't flinch training where you stand there with a protective yeah. helmet on and you let somebody hit you and you let that happen until you're able to keep your eyes open and not not just keep your eyes open and not flinch as such, but actually observe, okay, he's coming from this direction. He's coming right. at this speed at this angle. It's going to be like this. And, Um, taking away all that sort of panicky, jittery stuff. Um, And this is a great training. You know, we hope we won't be out there in the real world and being hit by a sword, but out in the real world, you get hit by events. Things happen. And if you can, you know, if you've got that flinch reaction damped down a bit and you can look at the thing a bit more dispassionately and come up with a better response, this is just great training. So to answer your specific question... I don't think it matters what you spend the million quid on. I think okay. as long as you spend it on something which people can get completely absorbed in, something that feels like play but is also serious, something that involves as much as possible the whole body and the mind.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And then when I look at all those requirements, oh, and something that fosters also a sense of teamwork, connection to the other people you're with – and this sense that there's something beyond what you're just doing yourself. So I'm not, uh, you know, if it's carpentry, it's not just that I learned to use a chisel. Now I'm better with a chisel. But it's like I've made this beautiful piece and this beautiful piece has a,
0: a, a worth of, of its and, own. And they, maybe that person with a chisel is helping to build sets for the next, you know, Il combatimento Actually, all these things, all these things interrelate. So, in a way, I think it doesn't
1: matter. And then, when I look at the different things, um, I think I have to say that historical martial arts has a wonderful mix of, you know, this involvement with the past, this respect for the past, uh, this way if you're going to do historical martial arts, you have to start thinking outside the box because the box yeah. says pick up a gun and shoot the person, but we're not, guns aren't, aren't, aren't in this game. Yeah. So you've got a, you've got a new game, different set of rules. You've got to think differently. And so it's, you know, flexibility of thought process and all those sort of things. So, um, and, and I think it's also very helpful that uh, those of us who at school were in the weedy side of things, <laughs> Find something that we can do that does involve us with the body and gives us confidence that, you know, um, actually whatever shape you've started out in, you can get more healthy. You can use your body more effectively. You can enjoy the body you have. That's, I mean, I think it honestly took me until the age of 50 something when I started Historical Swords to, to really have fun, um, just doing stuff, you know, with, <laughs> with with these arms and legs, not necessarily doing it very well, but having fun doing it. And of course, wow. then I think, you know, well, hang on a minute, you know, when I was a teenager, I was playing the organ, and so I was using those arms and legs. Yeah, I just never thought of it like that. And um, I think it's very easy for people to uh, to lose to lose this. I suppose the word is holistic. You know, to lose. Mm. This, people it's very easy to put yourself into a box you've created for yourself so you say I'm an academic I don't I don't do sporty stuff or I'm a sportsman I don't think you know or yeah. whatever it might be and actually of course we've all got strengths and weaknesses in different areas but most of us can be more integrated than we think we can and we can have a lot of fun doing it um and so again I think okay. the avoiding the pigeonholing thing is something very valuable to give to People when they're young, yeah. Um, and yeah, I think um, <laughs> because in a way, historical martial arts are such an extreme pigeonhole. Um, it's it's sort of such a niche thing. Um, allowing somebody to get involved with that just means you don't fit in any of the other pigeonholes that society is trying to put you in. So you can <laughs> you can just do your thing. So that's a very long way round of saying that I think. The way I would like to spend my million quid is by inspiring young people um, in these kind of practices that are very holistic. And yeah, I think historical martial arts is one of the one of the coolest of them. So I not <laughs> <It> has <some laughs> and music has a lot of money that. in it. And I wonder how much the money in music helps the art. There's a whole we could have a whole program just about that we could but
0: we are we are at time because I actually have to go off for a flying lesson in just a minute wow I've been <laughs> so, this. so well thank you very much indeed for joining me today Andrew it's been great talking to you thank you Guy I have really enjoyed it thanks for listening I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Andrew you can find the episode show notes at guywindsor.net forward slash podcast while you are there you can sign up to my mailing list and I'll send you a free copy of my book Sword Fighting for Writers Game Designers and Martial Artists I'd like to thank my patrons on Patreon for their kind support of the show. It lets me know that you care about the show and want it to continue. You can join us there for behind-the-scenes content and to submit your questions for future guests. That's patreon.com forward slash theswordguy. Thanks, as always, to Andrew Lawrence King, again, for the Baroque harp accents, originally recorded for my Paradoxes of Defence audiobook project. And having listened to this episode, you probably get some idea of why when I happened to be chatting to him one day and mentioned the project, he was like, oh, guy, would you like some harp stuff for that? That we could do something from the period and, da, da, da. and I went, Andrew, that's very kind of you. Thank you very much. And so he did it. It is great having friends. So speaking of friends, join us next week when I'll be talking to Sarah Hay, who is a very well-known jouster, like proper jousting on horseback in armour. Um, She's been jousting since 2008 and moved from Australia to Oman in 2016 to be closer to the jousting circuit, which is dedication, is it not? And in 2018, she won the Queen's Jubilee Horn at the Royal Armory's Easter Jousting Tournament in Leeds. She's also won a bunch of other stuff and we get into some very interesting territory around training mindset and other things. So, you don't want to miss that. So... Please subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcast from. And while you're there, please do also rate the show. And if you have a minute, leave a review. It really does help. So thanks for listening and I will see you next week.